live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. What's Wagner's rule of life number four? <laughs> Nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm sorry, I understand I might be like a dog with a bone on this, but this is just fundamentally wrong. It is an insult, but let's tee this up. The Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 414-799-1620. I'm sorry, I think this is absolutely ridiculous. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Eric Bilstadt, you know who was wandering around the uh, station today? Yeah, Jonathan, Jonathan Green. Yeah. Jonathan Green, the legendary Jonathan Green, host of the Greenhouse. I was trying to think, it. he's probably been retired. It's got to be going on five years I, or so. Yeah, I think it, it's more than that. I yeah. think it was 2011 is when Wisconsin's Afternoon News began. It was shifted over. It's just... Um, I, you know, I, I'm always amazed by you know having once, and you can you can say the same thing. We, we've been here long enough to think back on all the incredibly talented people we've mm-hmm. worked with. I mean, the late Gordon Hinckley, who yep, was just a, yep. a WTMJ legend, and you know John Green and Charlie Sykes, Jim Irwin, uh, Jim Irwin, absolutely. You know Rob Edwards, all all of those great folks. And it's just I, I always think about that every time the show starts, and I hear the music about you know all the other people that have sat at this microphone and all the incredibly talented folks. But John, John looked great. He is mm-hmm. now a full time Tucson resident. He was telling me about he's he, he said well. He said the the summers are hot in Tucson, but he can deal with the heat of summer better than he can deal with the polar vortex winter of, <laughs> right, of yeah, here. You I know, and, and oh, I oh, believe me, <laughs> believe me, I could understand exactly what he was talking about. But for everybody wondering, you know, how Jonathan Green is doing, Jonathan Green looks absolutely tremendous. So it was good to see him. All right, we have got a lot of stuff on today's program. Let us get started. The stock market is. It was a bad week in the stock market last week, down uh, five, six, seven hundred points. That was for the week. The stock market today, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, down 703 points and getting worse. That's about a 2.7% drop. The NASDAQ down 280 points. That's a 3.5% drop. Now, this is on the heels of the huge drop that you saw last week that that started essentially a week ago today. What happened a week ago today? Well, President Trump decided to take to Twitter to threaten that there were upcoming negotiations with China. He took to Twitter to threaten that he was going to impose massive tariffs on Chinese-made goods coming into the United States. And that spooked Wall Street. There were meetings last week between the U.S. and China, and apparently they, they did not end well. No agreement being reached. And over the weekend, China announced that in retaliation for the U.S. imposing tariffs, $200 billion in tariffs, what they said is now they're going to impose retaliatory tariffs on $60 billion in U.S. goods. Now, the reason, as we said during the news, the reason for the disparity is that the U.S. imports more stuff than China imports, which is an ongoing issue. But the bottom line of this is you have a full-blown trade war that appears to be emerging, and Wall Street, together with international markets, is absolutely freaked out, Dow down over 700 points today alone, which maybe you don't care about if you're 25 years old, but if you're 
I don't know, living on your retirement assets. Yeah, this or planning to live on your retirement assets. Yes, this is, in fact, a big, big deal. And it was all started because President Trump decides that he is going to, you know, talk tough to China. Now, here's the reality of all this. Yet China has been getting away with stuff for years. There's no question about it, particularly with regard to stealing intellectual property of the United States. You know, somebody comes out with some idea and patents it, protects it. China ends up stealing it and then, you know, taking and then putting out their own version of that um, to the detriment of the U.S. companies. There's no question that's been going on. And there's no question that there's problems that are on the horizon. However, getting into a full blown trade war does two things. Number one, it freaks out companies and causes the stock market to plunge like it's doing today. Number two, it increases the costs to all of us consumers. Yes, it makes it more expensive for, you know, China to, you know, sell their goods. But that ends up getting passed on to you and me, the consumers. We're buying the stuff, and all of a sudden, if you say, all right, you know, we're going to impose $200 billion in tariffs on Chinese products, all right, what's going to happen? Well, the cost of those products is going to go up. Who loses in a trade war? Well, it's the consumers who are buying the products. Our number, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, whenever I talk about things like this, I always hear from a couple people who I am convinced either are retired stockbrokers or who work as stockbrokers who say, oh, don't, don't be concerned about this. This is a buying opportunity. The stock market's down 1,300 points in a week. What you do is you take all that cash that you have sitting on the side and you pour it in. This is a great time to buy. Well, except most people don't have don't have half a million dollars in cash sitting on the side waiting for an opportunity. Most people are watching the value of their 401k portfolios go down. Our number 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line. This is what President Trump admittedly has been talking about doing, you know, since he got elected. He he's not a free trader. He wants to impose huge tariffs as a way of trying to pressure China. My concern is this does not work. And all this ends up doing is creating chaos. And chaos is not good for the consumer. Chaos is not good for the manufacturer. And chaos is not good for the economy. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. President Trump has chosen to pick a fight at this point in time with China. The stock market is responding in a very, very bad way. Are you concerned? My answer is yeah. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Let's start off with the text. Jeff, the people that suffer from these trade wars are the people at the base of the pyramid. Here in the U.S., that's farmers and laborers. In China, it's farmers and laborers. They have way more people to sacrifice than we do. They can and will out-siege us. Interestingly, the newspapers in China today, and the newspapers are essentially state-controlled, have taken a very, very hard line on this, essentially, again, painting America as being the bad guys. I will say one other thing before we start taking calls. I have, 
I was going to say a number. I have a handful of friends who are engaged in various forms of international business and have to negotiate deals with the Chinese. And I'm talking in a general term now. They all tell me it is very, very difficult to cut deals with the Chinese, that it's it's that there. I don't know whether it's a, a cultural type of thing, but it's very, very difficult to negotiate these deals. And you think you've got a deal and then it's kind of like, you know, Charlie Brown trying to kick the football and Lucy keeps pulling the football away. And I've, I've heard one horror story anecdotally after another from, again, some of my friends who have to negotiate in the international business world. All I know is that when I see the stock market plunging like it has, and I see you know us talking about, well, hundreds of billions of dollars of tariffs on imports, all that means is higher prices. And I guess I'm raising the question about, is there a better way to accomplish this instead of I don't know, taking to Twitter and, and threatening these types of things. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with, uh, let's see, Keith in Sheboygan Falls. Keith, you're first. Hello. Hi. Hi, Keith. What do you think? So well, I'm, I'm looking at this in, in a pragmatic uh, uh, sense and thinking that, you know, President Trump's being made out to be the bad guy. And I think uh, that's, in my opinion anyway, uh, a little bit of a stretch. Look, could he be better with his tweaks and, and, and everything else? Absolutely. Um, but he's got a negotiating team. He's been working at this for a couple of years. I don't think those folks are probably being unreasonable. It's just that the things that we want aren't the things that China wants. Mm-hmm. And when those two things don't coincide, I don't think Z is going to be feeling as though he owes us anything. Right. He wants to keep the status quo. He knows he's going to be in office for as long as he wants. Uh, because it's a communist nation, and whether it's um, the stalling tactics that I think that they've been using Mm -hmm. or targeted tariffs against people that voted for Donald Trump or stealing our intellectual property rights, it seems as though to me they've got what they want and they're not really planning on meeting us in good faith. Which I guess... That's kind of my thought on Well, and, and, I, and I don't necessarily disagree with anything you've said. That kind of ties into what I was talking about a minute ago with my, my, my friends who are international business and, and deal with China, and they just talk about it as being one of the most aggravating things ever because you think you've right. got a deal, and then you can't get people to sign off, and you can't get people to sign off, and then they keep changing conditions. And I'm talking about in general terms. But I guess given what you just said... That, does what the president did last week make sense by coming out and saying, OK, well, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to impose, you know, billions of dollars in tariffs. And then, of course, you see the disruption that's gone on for the last week. Does that get us closer to a deal? I would say um, no. Mm-hmm. But with the caveat that if not now, when they realize that we have an election cycle coming up, right. they realize that the pressure of this is going to be mounting daily, monthly. And they also realize that they control everything on their side of the equation, where we don't control the press, we don't control private individuals, we don't control consumers the way they do. They know that it's only a matter of time, and they'll probably win. And my guess is that's where they're headed. So if we don't do this now, my question would be, when are we going to ever approach this so that we can get a fair playing field? Well, I guess the the issue is, again, what's the timing of this, and and does... 
does this tactic, the drawing the line in the sand, does that move us any closer to trying to get the resolution that you and I both want to see? And and that's my question. I'm not sure that that happens. And look, again, I, I understand I'm getting a number of texts from people saying, oh, Jeff, there's nothing to worry. So the stock market drops 13 or 1400 points in the space of a week. You know, that 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 doesn't matter to people. Well, it, it, it does matter to a lot of people. Now, the stock market right now is still up for the year. I understand all that. And we've had this period of record growth. But, you know, I mean, try telling it to the people who are close to retirement. Try telling it to the people who are living on, you know, their 401k savings in connection with their, their retirement savings and in connection with Social Security. Try to tell them that it doesn't matter that, hey, you just lost 3% of your assets today. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Dan in Eagle. Hi, Dan. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, character issue. We have a commander-in-chief that doesn't like to read, that is impulsive and a bully, mm-hmm. and he's a draft dodger. What do you think is going to happen when you put him in the White House? I mean, wait till a war comes. Wait for a real war, not just a trade war. And he's out selling it that, uh, oh, this is hurting China, not Americans. Yeah. I mean, he's not even truthful about this. Well, well right, because it hurt. I mean, right, that's Larry Kudlow, the economic advisor. You know, he's doing the Sunday shows, and, and he even acknowledges, yeah, well, it, it's going to yeah, hurt I, all of us. Yeah. Hardly. Uh, oh, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. Well, that's a good one, Larry. Nice one. Yeah, because um, right, no, thank, cause, I mean that that's that's the reality. I mean, I, I remember when President Trump first started talking about this, and and again, this is President Trump is a different kind of Republican than I am. I freely acknowledge that I am a free trader, and I I, I get that China has been manipulating things, and I I get that they are a bad actor when it comes to certain types of things. But I'm not convinced that upsetting the apple cart and using tariffs and getting into a, a trade war that hurts everybody, that I'm not at all convinced that we can win. I, I'm not sure that that's the way to go around it. And I guess the other thing that I seriously question is whether or not when President Trump took to Twitter last week to try to draw this line in the sand, was was this this considered, well-thought-out bargaining chip? Here, this is the particular time that I am going to choose to now provoke this full-blown fight. Or was it, you know, a wild hare getting stuck up a certain part of his anatomy, and he takes the Twitter, and next thing, you know, the stock market is down 12, 13, 1,400 points. We continue the conversation. This is the significant story of the day. And, look, I, I hope it all works out. I, I, I do. I just don't think that getting into trade wars with one of the other major economic powers, probably the other major economic power in the world, is necessarily something that is in the interest of any of us. We continue the conversation in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Now, look, I want to be honest. I would say the vast majority of phone calls that we have are people that support the president in, in picking this particular type of tariff fight. And, that, and that's okay. I just respectfully disagree with that. Let's talk to Mike in Oconomowoc. Hi, Mike. You're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. What do you I think? Say, I, I say that the problem we have is that the reason why these tariffs are going to be good is because they're going to finally put Chinese products on the same cost basis as United States products are in China. And when that happens, people in our country are not going to be looking for, they're going to have to start paying the same price for quality products being made here compared to the cheap stuff that China's sending us over, like their steel and their and their drywall and all the other stuff that's had to be recalled. 
And I think what we have to understand, if you say you're a free trader, you cannot say status quo because currently with China, there is no free trade going on. If Mike, let me ask you this, though. How how do you think – okay, so we, we impose tariffs. China responds with tariffs. Um, what, what do you think is going to happen? Let's talk about agriculture, for example. Um, China has all sorts of China has all sorts of choices. For example, as to where they can get soybeans. So why do they continue? If if you make the cost of importing soybeans from the U.S. Uh, artificially high with tariffs, why don't they just go to Brazil and buy their soybeans? They already are giving it artificially high tariffs. You got Jeff. You got to tell people the truth that's going on here. The farmers are getting killed by the Chinese as far as the tariffs on their product to make it a non-competitive environment. Nobody in the, in the world is supplying as much food product as our farmers do, period. They just don't. And the other thing you're not talking to people about is the fact that China's economy is free-falling right now. Right, the but... Why it's a communist country, and it's like, like socialism, it cannot sustain itself. Our, con- our, comp- our country's economy is going strong, and that's well, why we're going to... Well, okay, but no... But, but, right okay, Mike, I, I'm sorry, I've got to take a break from the news, but, but let's, you're, let's talk about... You are right. As a result of what's been going on now, you have communist China that is putting all sorts of subsidies into their economy. They're able to do that. What was the effect of the last round of tariffs that the president launched into? Well, you had agriculture, agriculture in Wisconsin that was getting killed. So what was our response? Well, we're going to have taxpayer bailouts of the farmers. You know, remember all that? And I guess my point would be, if the question is, who can sustain that longer? Communist China putting money into artificially, you know, prop up their businesses, or the U.S., my guess would be... you know, at least in any sort of reasonable period of time, it would be China. Again, I understand that there's problems. I'm not saying that you don't have to deal with China. I'm just saying this kind of scattergun, massive approach, picking this as the time to, you know, go into this trade war, I think the timing is awful. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We're going to move on. Like I say, the vast majority of callers say, oh, let's, let's go to war with China. That's great. And again, I get some of the ones saying, OK, so the stock market's down 3%. Who cares? This is an opportunity to invest. Rejoice. Well, OK, that, that assumes that you have a huge chunk of money that's sitting on the sidelines, that you've been waiting for this artificial trade war. Look, I understand China needs to be reined in. I get all that. I'm just not at all convinced that, you know, tariffs are the way to do it. Historically, it doesn't work. It didn't really work when we tried it elsewhere. And again, it's like the little people. Somebody who cares about the Wisconsin economy, for example, you just get it, it kills the farmers. And, and yes, I understand that what happens is our response is, OK, let's have the taxpayers bail out the farmers. Well, OK, they, they're never getting a full bailout. And for example, my concern is that if because of tariffs, let's say China stops buying soybeans. I'll use that as an example because we sell a lot of soybeans there. And so all of a sudden China starts getting them from Brazil. Well, who's to say when things normalize if they're going to normalize that they're going to go back to continuing to buy stuff from the u.s that's why i think these trade wars are just a poor idea and i will say one other thing again it's if i was convinced 
that this was part of some grand economic strategy that, that the president had. You know, being that chess player where you see three or four moves down the way, maybe I'd have a, a, a different attitude. Maybe I'd say, okay, well, this maybe just Donald Trump is smarter than all of these economists that are out there, and he, he knows more. Maybe I'd say that, except there is an interesting piece in the Washington Post. Amid signs that investors were questioning his adversarial approach, Trump t- attempted to assuage the public in a series of Twitter posts over the last couple of days. Some of his tweets contained typos and misspellings, suggesting the comments had not been thoroughly vetted by White House officials and might not represent fully planned out policy initiatives. Yeah, I, I guess that's that's the thing um, that, that's out there, too. Is this really part of some massive strategy that we, we've thought out and we understand how this is going to play out? Or is it just... Well, we've kind of got this wild hair up a certain part of one's anatomy, and here we're going to do this. And eh, so the stock market goes down 700 points. You know? so, so you're not able to retire. Who, who cares? huh? All right. Let us completely and totally switch gears. States, including Wisconsin, are grappling with how do you pay for infrastructure improvements? And, and, you know, we've we've talked about a variety of things. There's some people who believe that it's time to increase the gas tax in Wisconsin that's been stuck around 33 cents. There's people in Washington who want to increase the federal gas tax at bump at a quarter or whatever. In addition, there's other things that are being looked at. We've talked about some of these other things before. One of the ideas on the table is maybe start going to toll roads. I mean, they do that in, in Illinois. Maybe we could do that here. One of the things that they are seriously considering doing in Illinois, though, is increasing registration fees, not not on cars that operate on gasoline, but rather on electric vehicles. There is a proposal that's out there that would increase the annual fee for electric vehicles. And, and by the way, this is we're not talking about hybrids. We're talking about the full-on electric cars, um, the Teslas, etc. It would increase Illinois' annual registration fee for electric vehicles from $17.50 to $1,000. The argument is, well, these electric vehicles, they don't use gas at all. And so they're using the roadways. They're not paying their fair share. You're paying $17.50 to to register your car. So let's go after, in this case, it's the electric vehicles, 1000 bucks. But I guess my question would be, intellectually, if if you're going to do that, you know, why shouldn't you also go after the, the hybrids, you know, the ones that are primarily electric, and then the gasoline motor kicks in at a certain point in time? The idea being that these vehicles aren't paying their fair share on the roadway. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is it reasonable to say to all of you, if you're driving, you're driving that Tesla, you're in that electric car, that in Wisconsin, the registration fee is 75 bucks. That's the state registration fee. And if you live in the city of Milwaukee, there's an extra fee. And if you live in Milwaukee County, there's an extra fee. But it's peanuts compared to what it could be. So is it reasonable to say, all right, you need to pay more. So you own the electric vehicle. 
Here, it's going to be a thousand bucks. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should we do that? All right, I'm going to tell you where I come down on this and we're going to discuss in just a moment. But if you own the electric vehicle or, and again, they haven't reached this far in Illinois to go after the hybrids, but I don't see intellectually any difference. You bought that car, you're getting 60 or 70 miles a gallon. Should you pay substantially more than the 75 bucks that you currently have to pay to register your car? I'll tell you where I come down on this and we'll discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 414-799-1620 is our number. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us after three games at Wrigley Field, two of which should have been rained out. The Brewers head east to continue their long 10-game road trip. First up is the Phillies from Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. Jeff and Lane have the call. Our Brewers coverage starts at 5.30 tonight, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. Actually, Mr. Baseball, Bob Eucher, I'm going to be with him tonight. He's uh, one of the presenters. I'm the MC for the 40th Annual Armed Forces Dinner. And uh, Bob is one of the presenters. Uh, Robin Yount is going to be in town. He's getting an award, so we're going to be hanging out. Then we got a lot of military types. It's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, so so here's the deal. In Illinois, they're set, they're having the same problem we're having in Wisconsin. How do you pay for road fixes? One of the things they're considering doing is jacking the registration fee for electric vehicles from seventeen fifty, which is what standard cars pay, up to a thousand dollars. All right, would this be a fair way to deal with things? Let's start with Jim in Appleton. Hi, Jim. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? I don't think that's very nice because... <laughs> because <laughs> well, no, there's nothing I, to do about taxes that are nice. <laughs> but, that's true, yeah. that's true. But, um, so my wife and I have a Chevy Bolt. Okay. Um, not, not the Bolt, it's the Bolt. That's all electric. Okay. And so when we went to renew the plates, they went from 75 bucks to 90 Right. No explanation, so we're thinking... Oh, wait a minute. Not while you scratch your head and say, whatever, you got to pay it. So, but we did get a real nice tax rebate for buying an electric car. Yep. But now we're driving around in this car that leaves a way of smaller or even no carbon footprint. And I, I just don't think it's fair that we should be penalized for driving an electric car. Okay. Now, let um, me ask you the flip side, though. Would you mm-hmm. agree that you it's fair to expect you to pay a fair share for the, the stress and the wear on the roads that you cause in your car? Um, I, I think you got a good point there. <laughs> okay. But, you know, what else I, I wanted to say was along those same lines is a friend of mine lives in Minnesota, and he... Excuse me, I got a yeah. uh, scratchy sure. scope. Anyway, he bought a, a hybrid, it's not a hybrid, but he bought an expensive SUV. Right. Now, in Minnesota, they uh, pay registration fees that amount to 10% of the value of your car. Mm-hmm. So, And it goes down each year because, obviously, your car depreciates. So for the first year he has his car, his plates are $65. And then next year, they're a little less and a okay. little less. And I'm not sure how they make that just stay at one at one level, but... So I'd be more in favor of an overall uh, increase because I think Wisconsin's one of the least expensive places to register a car. And if you were going to put toll roads in and make those go into effect, now we got to do the brick and mortar. Right. We got we to pay to have people in those booths. And so I think right. that would be... Okay. Custom. There's other ways. No, no, thanks for calling, Jim. See, I, I, I get it. I mean, I understand that they're... they're this is a debate that I think has to play out, and I appreciate your point. That's the, you're you're saying. Look, I bought this car, and I, I bought it with the idea that here I, I I want to I want to have limited carbon footprint, and and that's you know that, that's great. But the truth is, 
those of us who haven't purchased the electric vehicles, we pay the registration fees, but we also support the road improvements by, you know, the, the gas tax that is out there. And, okay, if my car gets 30 or 35 miles a gallon or whatever it is, you know, I'm filling up once a week as a general rule, maybe twice if I'm commuting back and forth from somewhere. But, you know, I am contributing more, whereas the person that has the true electric vehicle isn't isn't paying that portion. I think something has to be done. Now, look, I don't know that $1,000 is the right amount. I do think that it's fair to say to people who are, you know, driving, again, the electric vehicles, and I think of extending it to hybrids, I think it's fair to say as long as we're going to be dependent on a gas tax that and we agree that the premise is we've got to raise more money i think it's fair to say that you should pay some form of higher registration fee a year to make up for the mileage that you're driving but the fact that you're you're not you know going to the gas station so you're not supporting it now do i think a thousand dollars you know going from 1750 to a thousand dollars or in the case of wisconsin going from 75 dollars to a thousand dollars that probably strikes me as extreme but i do think from a matter of fundamental fairness it's not unreasonable to say hey you're using the same roadways and you're driving let's say you're driving 25,000 miles um you're not paying a huge element of the taxes to support that road construction like somebody who's driving a different car is 414-799-1620 now a thousand bucks sounds to me to be extreme but that's illinois for you pete in waterford pete you're on wtmj good afternoon hi hi pete i i agree with it okay and the reason i agree with it is because the roads still have to be maintained and we're all paying a fair share of that and Mm -hmm. we all are trying to buy buy better cars but those of us who can't afford them then we're still paying that tax and i agree that uh that it should be yeah as high as as it would take if somebody were driving you know an annual 12 or Yeah, I mean, thanks to call. I think you have to level the playing field. Now, look, here, here in a perfect world, here's what I would do. I, I think in a perfect world, the registration fee should be tied to the miles that you drive. Because in that case, it's tied directly to, you know, the, the use that you're imposing on, on the road. Because you can make an argument, because Jeff, well, it's not a level playing field. You know, the person that, that drives 3,000 miles a year, you know, pays the same registration fee as the person that drives 35,000 miles a year, and, and they're putting a lot more stress on the roads. Now, admittedly, they're presumably buying more gasoline but but from a pure registration fee perspective it's it's not the same in a perfect world um, I think what you would do is you would pay your registration fees, you know, based on the amount of mileage that you drove. Now, unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. I don't see, at least right now, how you practically could do something like that because – if if you just simply said to people, okay, well, once a year, it's not just that you have to send this thing in, you know, with a check for $75. It's you have to take your car in somewhere and you have to have the odometer measured and then you're going to get an assessment. I, I, I just think that there's a ton of people. We already have a huge problem with people who are driving unregistered, unlicensed vehicles and things of the like. If you did something like that where you said, okay, you're going to have to do this, I, I think you'd have fill in the blank, 10%, 20%, 30%. 
who knows how many other people that simply decided, well, we're not going to do this. We're just going to take our chances. And I think, you know, ultimately under that idea, even though it might be fairer, you might even see revenue drop. So you, you have to nothing is going to be fair. It's just it's just not. You have to choose different choices. But I do think that one component of any, if we agree that we need to raise more money for the roads, I think one component has to be assessing what we're doing with electric vehicles and expecting those drivers to, with all due respect, pay their fair share. Not necessarily, I, I don't know, like I say, going from 1750 to a 1000 bucks strikes me as maybe that's not necessarily the fair share, but you have to do something to recognize that, all right, you're using the same roadways, you're putting a stress on that, and we need some money. It's 1254. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Sarah Kilstead, you were reporting the news that Doris Day passed away at the age of 97. Yes. I I don't think a lot of people know the, the Doris Day story and what a big star that she was. 1960, 1962, 1963, and 1964, she was the number one ranked star at the box office. Hmm. I mean, she was for for that year, and it was only the she was only she was the second woman to be number one four times. Not John Wayne. Not, I mean, not Cary Grant. Yeah, not yeah. Jimmy Stewart. It was Doris Day. How about that? During those periods of time, and she, you know, and the thing is, I I. I I sort of like some of those old silly romantic comedies that she made. You know, Pillow Talk, with which is well, with Rock, Rock Hudson, Hudson yeah. right? And then Tony Randall. And then they went on to do Lover Come Back and then uh, Send Me No Flowers. And, of course, now you watch them now and you realize, and I, I just say this objective, Rock Hudson was, was, was gay. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're sitting there thinking, okay, you know, and, and, he's, and he's playing the romantic lead. You get the impression about what a great actor the guy you know, must have been in that case. Um, you know, Doris Day also, I mean, I think my favorite role, I'm an Alfred Hitchcock fan, and she was in The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is a 1956 movie with Jimmy Stewart, and that's where they debuted the uh, Que Sera, yeah, Sera right. song, yep. won the Academy Award. Okay. Here's the other Doris Day piece of trivia. I am a huge fan of The Graduate. You've seen The Graduate? Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Dustin Hoffman, Anne Bancroft, Catherine Ross, oh, yeah. all yep, that yep, stuff. Yep. Do you know that Doris Day turned down the Mrs. Robinson part? Really? They Doris Day was their first choice to play Mrs. Robinson, the Anne Bancroft yeah, role, yeah. you know, the, the older woman. The older woman. You're just trying to seduce me, Mrs. Robinson. Yeah, she was the one that they offered that role to, and she turned it down because she found the script to be vulgar and offensive. Huh. She passed on The Graduate. Uh, and actually, her last feature-length movie was, I think, 1968. So that was the last movie that she sure. did and stuff. But um, just... I, I mean, just an incredibly talented performer and all who just had a very interesting kind of life and, and really a- after movies and stuff and, and tastes kind of changed in the late sixties where we went from the romantic comedies to like send me no, you know, flowers, stuff like that to some of the more hard edge type of stuff. She kind of fell out of favor, but you wonder if she would have taken, if she would have been Mrs. Robinson, that yeah. could have just opened up a whole. Absolutely. For good or bad, but, uh, <laughs> for, for good or bad, but yeah, Doris Day passed away. I remember she used to have a TV. TV show, you know, she used to have a TV show um, that ran on CBS for a handful of years. I think in the uh, in the seventies and things like that. So, she dated Ronald Reagan. 
I did not know that. See, I, see I'm just cow. a wealth of, Man, of trivia. So. She, she, she dealt. You know, she dated Ronald Reagan at at some point in time. Yeah, the Doris Day show. Uh, yeah, Dor- she appeared. Yeah, Doris Day show, um, own television show, um, as as well in the '70s. So. What, what can you say? Doris Day, say awesome. But she she was just an incredible performer and, like I say, as, as big a star as you can possibly imagine. There is a report out. Uh, the Journal Sentinel has a big story on this, and I want to offer a comment on it. The headline says, Republican Party maxed out credit card, racked up $600 in monthly interest as it tried to save Scott Walker. What, what happened is there... After the the results of last year, a lot of a lot of soul searching in the Republican Party about, you know, was there something that could have been done that that could have turned the election around? Could Scott Walker have won? Could Brad Schimmel have won? A lot of lot of internal soul searching w- was going on, and I I will tell you when when people asked me about this informally. I just always said, you know, it was just it was going to be, I, I think, a difficult year for Republicans because of the Donald Trump effect. Now, hear me out for a minute. Whether you love President Trump or don't, he's a very, very divisive force. And I think one of the things that happened in 2018, and you saw this in Wisconsin and you saw it around the country, is you had some extremely motivated Democrat voters, and in this case in Wisconsin that was in Dane County and to a lesser extent in Milwaukee County, who who ran out. And these were the people that were going to run through brick walls in order to vote not so much, I think, for Tony Evers, but against Scott Walker because they wanted to send a message to Donald Trump that, you know, we're upset with you. To an extent, it was the same thing I think you saw in Wisconsin in reverse in 2012 when there was the recall election and you had a lot of, again, pro-Walker voters who were willing to run through brick walls to vote for Scott Walker when that recall was going on. So history has a way of repeating itself. And, And I think... That was and continues to be the the overarching problem that Republicans in Wisconsin faced in 2018. Now, the Republican Party decided, and and I think Ron Johnson, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, was kind of the the driving force on this, though, to take a, a big look at party organization, what were we doing, what was being done, et cetera, et cetera. And I think one of the there's this report that's out there. You know, one of the conclusions is that Republican operations in the state of Wisconsin became very, very top down. In other words, it was in some respects, the Republican Party kind of outsourced its operations to the Walker campaign and the Walker campaign heavy with consultants and advertising and things like that getting away from the grassroots, the, you know, the, the turnout operations, you know, the boots on the ground that actually motivate people to get them out. I, I, I think, I think in some respects that might be overblown, but it, it's no question it was a, a factor. You saw last April in the Supreme Court election the fact that the conservative candidate uh, surprised a lot of people. Everybody thought he was going to lose, but you had this incredible grassroots effort that got out. People got to the polls, and you know the conservative candidate ended up winning. So anyhow, that this report that's out there, I, I think, does I mean, it says a couple things. It says first of all that the Republican Party got away from the, the grassroots. 
and and I think that's true. I mean, do do you need advertising? Do you need you know campaign strategies and messaging? You do, but you can't do that at the expense of again the the volunteers, the people who are you know, showing up to knock on the doorbells and put the flyers on and things like that. And I think the Republican Party kind of lost its way in that regard. The second thing that comes through in this story is, well, after the election was over, the Republican Party in Wisconsin was essentially broke and actually kind of in the hole because they had spent all their money, again, trying to win the election. To me, this is less of an issue. I have always said this. If you show me campaigns or political organizations or whatever that after an election have this huge uh, amount of cash that's sitting around, I'll show you political campaigns or political parties that aren't doing their job. I mean, the idea is... Okay, you're supposed to spend the money to get your candidates elected. Now, in this particular case, it, it didn't work for the Republicans in 2018, just like it hasn't worked for Democrats, you know, in elections before that. But, but you do want to spend all your money. You, you shouldn't, in my opinion, be running surpluses, you know, after an election ends. And, you know, so what the Republican Party has been doing is apparently, you know, fundraising to try to, you know, pay off the debts. I'm less concerned about that. I want to have, and this I'd say this to Republicans or Democrats, I, I want to have the parties spending the money. The big uptake on this, though, is, you know, the, the fact that you cannot forget grassroots. And this is a message both to Democrats and Republicans that the way you win elections, yes, you need the fancy TV ads. And yes, you need the fancy radio ads. And yes, you probably need the mailings and things like that. But you also have to recognize that there's nothing that beats a strong grassroots organization, you know, in particular counties with dedicated volunteers who are going to be working 12 and 13 and 15 hours a day, calling their friends, calling their neighbors, banging on doors and making sure people get out to vote. That's how you win elections in Wisconsin. And it's an object lesson for people who are going to be involved in political campaigns over the course of the next 18 months. You want the consultants, you want the fancy ads, but don't forget grassroots. And I do think to an extent, to an extent, the Republican Party of Wisconsin lost its way. And I think that's what this conclusion says. And I, I think they're not going to make that mistake again. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. All right. A few months ago, the huge controversy was these Boeing 737 MAX jets, the ones who I, I think pretty clear kind of rushed into production and uh, had some software problems. And I, I don't think you can argue now that these software problems led to two plane crashes um, in different parts of the world. As a result of this, these 737 MAX planes have, have been taken off that you don't fly them anymore. And, you know, Boeing is being charged with coming up with the software fix to make sure the problems don't reoccur. Initially, uh, the thinking was that these these planes could be cleared to fly by, by June. And now what they're saying is it's more likely that these Boeing 737s, the ones that were in service, and there's a lot more that are being produced, but the ones that are in service, they're probably not going to start flying again until late August or September at the earliest. All right. So that that's the regulatory approach. Now, of course, this is a big deal because the, this is the new generation of plane that Boeing had come up with. And a lot of their economic success is based on these planes. So. 
It appears that the regulators across the world are going to give the go-ahead for these planes to get back up in the air August, September. Now, that doesn't help a lot of airlines who were counting on some of these planes to help them during the busy summer flying season, but it is what it is. But here's the other problem that Boeing faces, and that is getting people to agree to fly them. Interesting story in the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, Boeing is saying, look, you know, once these planes get back up in the air, you don't have to worry. You know, we're, they're, they're going to be safe. There's no problem. But the Wall Street Journal is going out and they're interviewing all these regular flyers. And you know what the flyers are saying? They are saying, in general, there's no way in God's green earth that they're going to fly this 737 MAX plane anytime soon. Here's one. Lance White, a 39-year-old radiologist who flies a few times a year, says he has no plans to board the jets once they're back in service. I just don't know there's anything Boeing could do to reinstill my confidence in this plane. He says he would want to see the jet fly safely for at least five years before he considered boarding one. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's tee this up. All right, if the government, if Boeing says, all right, we, we know that there's this problem here, we have adjusted the software, we've had the pilots trained on this, we have taken care of the problem, the regulators have signed off on this, are you going to get on that Boeing 737 MAX? Do you trust Boeing? Do you trust the regulators? Or are you going to be looking for any other type of plane besides this one? How big of a problem does Boeing have moving forward? Our number, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I've actually given this a, a lot of thought. I guess, I guess... And this is after a lot of thought. You know, if the regulators say they've taken care of this problem and and I, I got to get to a particular place, I, I'll fly the plane. But I have to admit, I'm not going to be going out of my way to fly this particular plane because in the back of my mind, I'm always going to be wondering what the heck else is what was wrong? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, when these planes go back in service a couple months from now, are you going to be willing to fly them? Ron in Richfield. Ron, you're first. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Say, if I have a choice to go on one airplane versus another one, and the one is like playing Russian roulette, it might potentially blow up or what have you, why on earth would I choose to go on that airplane when I can go on a different airplane? It, you know, yeah. it's so different than if you have an automobile that has the potential of a certain percentage of them to blow up. Right, so it's a Why Pinto or a Corvair. You're not going to buy the Pinto or the Corvair. You're right. going to buy something else. Right. I mean, it's just common sense. I okay, mean, but Ron, what if the government, what if Boeing says, okay, we figured out what the problem is, we fixed it, the government regulators now sound, say it's safe, you don't have to worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> your your comment stands okay no fair enough no for that see that's that's that is the massive 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 public relations problem that boeing has people saying well why would i do this steve in west bend sends me a text heck to the no on the 737 max and again i i i'm, I'm trying to give you the most honest answer that i possibly can on this do i 
do I trust the government regulators? Yeah, I probably can. I, I probably do. Do I think that they're going to let this plane back in the air before everybody has made sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed? No, I, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a safe type of plane. But yeah, I, I guess I find myself in the same situation. If I have a choice, and again, if, if to me, the things that are important when I'm going places is I like to the extent I can. I like direct flights and I like certain times and things like that. Would I say, no, I'm never under any circumstance getting on a 737 MAX? No, I, I don't think I would say that. Would it give me pause? Oh, there's this flight. This is the time I want. But, oh, it's going to be a 737 MAX. Huh. Let me at least explore whether there's something two hours later and do I really matter? I'm, I gotta tell you, and I'm not a white knuckle flyer, but I'll be thinking that. That's part of the thought process that I'm gonna go through. Maybe not now, maybe not forever, but at least for a while. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us after three games at Wrigley Field, two of which should have been rained out. The Brewers headies to continue their long 10-game road trip. First up is the Phillies from Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. Jeff and Lane have the call. Our Brewers coverage starts at 5.30 this evening, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. I want to revisit a story we talked about about a month ago. My basic premise is this. If you buy something You own it. And as a general rule, I don't think government should be telling you what you can do with it. Here's the story. Whitefish Bay, wonderful community. I lived in Whitefish Bay for about 30 years. So I I, I love Whitefish Bay. And I actually found City Hall to be relatively easy to deal with. Some people might disagree, but I never had any problems. They have this ordinance. Well, let me just be direct about what's going on here. You've got a really rich guy who owns a house on Lake Drive. All right. He's got an offer to buy his property. He wants to sell his house. What he's done is he's bought the house next door to his. All right. It's this big old house that was built by a famous architect. Um, it was built in 1928. It's on Whitefish Bay's historic registry. All right. So this is the house next door to his. He buys the house. The problem is that the house is in pretty much disrepair. The house has mold. It has all sorts of structural issues to it. It needs new wiring, etc., etc. You probably have to put over a million bucks in it just to kind of renovate it. And even if you do that, you've got an older house, plus the way it's situated on the house, it's situated wrong, so you don't get much of a view of the lake. It, you know, if you position the house one way, you've got the massive views of the lake. That's not the way the house is positioned. So he, he buys the house. He wants to tear down the house. And what he wants to do is he wants to tear down the house and he wants to build a modern house that he can live in on that spot. Whitefish Bay has this ordinance which says that you can't tear down this house unless you have made good faith efforts to try to sell the house to someone who is willing to either restore or relocate the the structure. And the, the estimates are it'd be to, to, to do that, to relocate the thing, it would take about $2.9 million. Well, nobody's going to do that. Um, restoring it, 
again, nobody, at least his position is, nobody's going to restore this because it's going to take, it, for all you'd have to put into to restore this, to get this old house into a place that you want to live in, it would be millions of dollars. And then even so, it's the house isn't in the right place on the property. So nobody's going to do that. So he wants to tear it down. Uh, last week, the Whitefish Bay Village Board said, nope, we don't believe you've made a good faith effort to try to find a buyer. So we're not going to let you tear down this house. All right. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I, I don't want to talk about the board's decision as to whether he made a good faith effort to find a buyer or not. I, I want to talk more about the overall concept of if you buy a property, should you be able to do what you want with it? Now, th- this this ordinance is on the books, and you can make an argument, a- again, that, you know, he, he shouldn't have bought this property, you know, knowing that, that they could tell him no, that he wouldn't be able to do what he wanted to do with it. So, I mean, I understand the ordinance is there, and I'm not too necessarily sympathetic with, with the guy, because if it was me, I wouldn't have sunk all this money into buying the place unless I was sure that I'd be able to do what I wanted to do. But that's not, to me, the most interesting story. The interesting question is, all right, should local government be telling you if you've purchased a property that you can't tear it down? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, local government, clearly, you've got zoning rules. You've got construction rules. You have to have X amount of, you know, green space and things like that. Those are all reasonable. But if you buy an older property and you decide, look, I I don't want to live in the older property. What I want to do is I want a new house on that lot. And, yes, I'm going to build it in accordance with all the standards that are there. Shouldn't you have the right to do that? I guess my issue here isn't with the way this ordinance is being applied, but it's with the concept of the ordinance in general. Should local government be able to say, no, you know, we think that house is historic, and even though you've purchased it, you can't do what you want with it? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think in many respects, if you buy something, and again, I, I understand that you've got the, you argue the guy should have known the rules. That's not the interesting thing here. To me, it is the law itself. If you buy something, should you be able to do what you want on your own property, including tearing down the house if that's your choice? 414-799-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Okay, I have a text here. What about the rule of law? The law protects the house. Just because the man's ignorant doesn't mean the law should bend. Okay, that, that's not the interesting aspect of this. I have a problem with the law itself. You've got these older homes. In this case, this home on Lake Drive, it's, it's in disrepair. All right. Somebody needs to put a whole bunch of money in it to make it livable. And even then, it's probably just outlived its usefulness, even though it's built by a famous architect. All right. If the city of, in this case, the village of Whitefish Bay, if they want to preserve it, well, they should have bought it. So you have this guy. And again, I have no sympathy. You know what the rules are. But I have an issue with the rule. He buys the house. He says, look, um, I, I want to tear this down because this house has outlived its usefulness. It's going to take all this money to renovate this particular thing. It's going to be worth way – then I'll put way more money in it than it's worth. I just want to tear it down. 
I think the guy, and again, I understand what the law says, but I think the law is wrong. I think if you buy something, you should have the right to be able to do what you want with it. Uh, again, again, with regard to, uh, again, you know, you still, if you're going to build something, you know, you've got zoning rules and stuff, and I'm, if it doesn't allow for McMansions, well, then you can't put that up. Okay, here's Pete says, um, the government should not be telling anyone to, to do with property. However, if it is historical property, I see it different. I think there'd be an electrical fire at the property if it was mine, just saying rebuild, problem solved. Well, you know, you want, you don't want to do that. I'm not encouraging that at, at all. But I mean, here, here's the bottom line of this. You, you have so many of these groups that I think are, are out there and, and they, they don't want to invest their own money and they don't want to invest public money, but it's we're going to tell you what you need to do with this property that you have purchased. I've always told this story. My wife likes Chardonnay, okay, but she likes to drink ice. She puts ice in her Chardonnay. Don't ask me why. I don't get it. But, you know, every once in a while you run into these bartenders who kind of – you know, look down their noses on you because, well, you're, you're putting Chardonnay in this good, you're putting ice cubes in this good wine. My philosophy has always been once you buy it, you, you should be able to do what you want with it. And if you want to put milk in it, because that, that's how you like to do it, I think that you should have the right to do that. This, to me, is the same sort of, of thing. And, and yes, if you've got historical properties that have outlived their usefulness, well, okay, maybe what the community needs to do is the community might need to say, hey, we need to figure out ways that we can buy them ourselves and we can restore them or we can preserve them or, or whatever. But to say to homeowners that, no, you're not going to be allowed to tear them down unless you jump through these hoops, uh, that to me, it's just not what government should be about. And I don't mean to pick on particular village board. Like I say, I mean, Whitefish Bay has this ordinance. Other communities have this ordinance as well. But not everything old is historic Sometimes old is just old, and if the choice is, gee, we're not going to let you tear it down, then what happens? The thing falls further and further into disrepair. Yes, you, you've got an historic place that gets dumpier and dumpier. How does that serve the community? Answer, it doesn't. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. <laughs> Jeff Wagner, so very glad to have you with us. This story about measles and the return of things like polio and hepatitis B and diphtheria, it, it, it continues to get worse and worse. And I admit that this is one where I, I have this extreme frustration, and I think that some of the leaders in the legislature, including people who I consider to be friends of mine and I agree with 90% of the time, are, are missing the boat. In Milwaukee... More than 11,000 children who attend Milwaukee public schools alone, more than 11,000, did not receive their required vaccinations this school year. And that includes not receiving vaccinations for um, measles and for illnesses like polio, polio. We eradicated polio in my lifetime, and now... It is on the verge of at least potentially making a comeback because parents are, in my opinion, as an almost general rule, too damn lazy to take their kids and get them vaccinated. And so you have these diseases that are on the verge of making a comeback. Let me translate this. This 11,000 number, it means that nearly 15 percent 
of students attending public schools in Milwaukee are without all necessary vaccinations. And what that means is that there might be too few vaccinated students to create what they call this herd immunity, which prevents newborn babies, unvaccinated children, or adults in poor health from contracting diseases that could kill or disable them. So there is legislation that was introduced in the state legislature, which would imitate legislature legislation that's been introduced in other places of the country which would say this if you're going to send your kids to public schools what you need to do is you need to have them vaccinated there's only two exceptions number one if there is a health exception and this is very very limited health exception meaning that if your kid gets vaccinated that's going to expose your child to some risk okay second is If you have a defined religious objection to vaccinations, you can opt out. But otherwise, you got to get your kids vaccinated. Right now, the law is so broad that you've got there's what they call essentially like a parental choice thing. I decide I don't want to do it. So you, you don't do it and you send your kids to school and your kids pick up the measles or, God forbid, something like polio. And they either contract it themselves or they pass it on to other kids, whether it's kids that are too young to have had their full vaccination thing or people who are because of some illness, some compromised immune system, they're, you know, they can't get the vaccine. Or maybe it's somebody who's older who, you know, has issues with, uh, you know, somebody who's, who's older who didn't get the vaccines because they weren't developed before 1957. Or maybe, you know, you, you haven't had the boosters over the years or whatever. It, it's, it's becoming this epidemic. And this is one, there was a Democrat in the assembly who introduced it. And you have the state assembly that says, we're not going to take this up. Don't know where the Senate is on it. But this, look, the worst thing in the world could be if you have, I mean, candidly, when it comes to measles, this is like a powder keg. And the worst thing in the world would be that if some unvaccinated kid I don't know, is somehow exposed to the measles on an airplane or I don't know where, brings it to school. And keep in mind that it takes a couple weeks a lot of times before you know that somebody has the measles, but that doesn't mean that they're not a carrier. All right, so somebody comes to school. You've got 15% of the kids at least there that aren't vaccinated. You know, then you're talking about this major spread. Other kids get contaminated. They go home, and they give it to their siblings or whatever. And next thing you know, you've got this full-blown epidemic that's out there. Well, okay, I just, I understand that children, that I think adults should be able to make decisions with regard to their kids and their kids' health and things like that. But at the same time, I mean, the decision to not vaccinate is, at least in my opinion, so incredibly irresponsible that I I think the general public has a right to sit down and say, okay, Mr. and Ms. Parent, if you decide that you're not going to have your kid vaccinated, fine. But then your kid's not going to be able to go to public schools. That's the decision that you are making when you make this decision. Because Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Let's not bury the lead. Here's the theme of the next segment of the program. Mom and Dad, do your kids a favor. Get rid of the clutter. <laughs> let me back into this story. The um, 
my parents, I grew up in Glendale. My parents lived in the same house from like 1967 to whenever we had to sell the house for them, when they they had to go into an assisted living facility. Let's say it's 2010. It may have been a little bit before that. But so they're in the place for 40 years. They have accumulated stuff. Now, in my parents, both my parents passed away a number of years ago, but in in their eyes, the stuff they had accumulated, they they were treasures. These were things that they accumulated over the course of their lifetime, et cetera, et cetera, and they cared for them deeply. Okay, well, the problem was that, first of all, they'd been in the house for a long time, so there was a lot of stuff. Secondly, in general, I, I, I I I had my own house. And believe me, I'll tell you that story in a second. My house was full of stuff. And the stuff that was in my mother's house didn't fit in with with my house. So, I mean, there were a couple things that I ended up wanting and, uh, you know, that that I ended up taking. But I I didn't want the living room furniture. I didn't need the curio cabinet. I didn't need the, you know, the desks. It it, it wasn't, and I'm not sentimental about this stuff, but we we had this, this whole house that was full of stuff. And then it got to the point where my mom and dad couldn't take care of it, so it fell on my my brother and I and my wife to figure out what we're going to do. And it was just... You know, it, it was just, it was awful. It, w- it was just awful. And, you know, my mom would say, okay, well, you're going to take these paintings or whatever. And I'm like, I, I don't know what to do with these paintings because I understand they're important to you. And I don't want to hurt, I'm thinking, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I, I, they're not going to fit in my house and they're not my taste and they're certainly not my wife's taste. And I, I don't know what we're going to do with them, but yeah, mom, I'll, I'll take them because I don't want to hurt her feelings. So we take them and we move them into my house. All right. So you, you go through that. But the truth was, with all, I mean, sentimental value aside from some things, you know, I, I didn't want all the stuff. I had no place to go with the stuff. I had my own stuff. And I didn't want the stuff that was in my parents' house, so I had to deal with, with this. All right, so then, you know, fast forward a few years, I'm getting ready to sell my house that I've been in for 30 years, and you want to talk about stuff. Well, I had a ton of stuff. I mean, I've told the stories. I, I went through five dumpsters, not just with the things that were in the house, but, you know, we were doing renovations and things like that. But I went through a, a lot of stuff, and I found all the different things that we had accumulated over the space of 30 years, and some of it had sentimental value that you want to keep. Some of it was good and that you might be able to either I could use it or, you know, you could you could give it to, you know, somebody who would really like it. A whole bunch of stuff ended up going to goodwill, but it was this incredible amount of stuff. Now, I bring this up because there's a story in the um, Chicago Tribune today um, talking about th- this tension that's there, and it's written by a gal who is a millennial. And she's talking about how she goes over to her parents' house, who are kind of aging baby boomers, and the place is just full of all sorts of stuff that mom and dad have accumulated over the years. And that mom and dad are resisting the urge of getting rid of this. And they're kind of expecting that the daughter, in this case, is going to take all this. And she's looking at this going, I have no place for for any of this. What am I going to do with these things? And mom is saying, oh, I think these paintings are going to look perfect in your kitchen, and this is going to look great there. And the whole piece is about how, you know, millennials – are are dealing with this this issue, and I'm a baby boomer. I was dealing with the issue about how their parents have all this stuff, and they're just it's got the sentimental value, but at the same time. 
they they don't want it. <laughs> they they just because they have all their own stuff that they have accumulated. And again, there's always going to be the thing with the sentimental value. In my case, it was my my grandfather retired in 1959, and they gave him this gold clock. Really, it's a solid gold clock. I didn't realize that, but you know. So there's things that you want, but in general, you know that that living room set that's been in your mom's living room since 1975. You know, you probably got your own living room set. And this whole story in the Chicago Tribune talks about how you you deal with that. Our number, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have come to believe that one of one of the greatest gifts that, that you can give your children, and I don't care what age you are, one of the greatest gifts you can do is by periodically culling your stuff and, and saying, okay, look, I... I don't want to leave you with a house that's full of clutter and you have to figure out how to deal with it. And I understand that you have your own life and you've got your own living room furniture and stuff. And is there is there something that you really want out of my house? And you want that painting? Great. That that painting's yours. Or, you know, you want that mixer? Great. That mixer's yours. But getting rid of the clutter so that other people don't have to deal with it. Because the truth is... Again, maybe there's the set of dishes that, that people, I, gosh, I, I remember we've got that set of dishes that's out there. I want that china or something like that. But as a general rule, you know, most people have their own things. And, you know, I, I think parents ha- do a great favor. One of the greatest favors you can do for your kids is by saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to go through all my stuff and I'm going to I'm going to get rid of a lot of the stuff that I don't need so that you don't have to inherit all this stuff and figure out what to do with it at the time when that ultimately comes. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Have you been through this? Uh, the, the idea that, I don't know, you know, you walk into your mom and dad's house and go, gosh, I love mom and dad and I love this house, but my God, there's so much stuff here what what's going to happen you know if something happens to mom and dad or have you looked around your own house and said boy i love all this stuff but you know what's going to happen if i've got to leave the house or something's got to happen to me 4147991620 that's the accurate mortgage talk and text line and it it's i will tell you it is a Having having been through this on on this side, I mean, my the current place I live now. One of the things that my wife and I always go through is, okay, you know, do we do do we really need this? We're not going to junk up the basement with with stuff that we're going to have to figure out what to do with five years from now or ten years from now. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Tim in Kenosha. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Sure, Mike. I, I really, really appreciate what you got for the, today's show. I collect antique furniture, and I'm a baby boomer, and I was just saving it for my children so, you know, they could go ahead and uh, furnish their apartments or their homes with it, and they're millennials. And my daughter was telling me, oh, yeah, I love it. And then she goes, you don't mind if I just stick it all on eBay and sell it? <laughs> and I'm like, sell it, sweetheart. I said, I cherish this stuff. I looked all over the place for it. And my wonderful children would just rather stick it on eBay or give it to Goodwill. (laughs) (laughs) So I've learned, like you're saying, just go ahead and just start, you know, getting rid of things. Okay, let me ask you this. Did Did it hurt your feelings when they told you that? You know, between us and the rest of the radio world, it really did. Uh huh. Because I valued 
the stuff. I mean, it was good. It's beautiful quality furniture. Right. Uh, you know, I paint and decorate, so I made right. sure that if I it tweaked, you know, I had to go sure. ahead and make it nice. But, yeah, she would rather stick it on eBay or give it to Goodwill. You know, I finally come to a conclusion, Jeff. You know, if I do pass away, you know, God bless my soul, but my stuff would probably end up on either eBay or Goodwill. Right. Every bit of it. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but, but be, yeah, thanks, Colton. I guess my only advice to you, Tim, was I, I, I'd cut your kids a little bit of slack because, okay, they're kind of looking at it and they're saying, look, we know how important this was to Dad. We know, you know, we, we know it gave Dad a lot of pleasure doing this type of stuff, but we've got all our own stuff, and it doesn't really go in the living room, and I'm sure they want, I mean, some stuff a, as a keepsake, but but yeah, I mean, I, I find this happening more and more when I go into some of my friends' houses, particularly, you know, who are getting up there in age a little bit, and I, I look around and I see all this stuff and all these knickknacks, and they're great things, and they're valuable, and I know that there's a, a story attached to each of them, but I keep thinking, my God, if something happens, what's going <laughs> who's going to deal with all the, these things? We pick it up right there, 414-799-1620. If you're on the line, please hold on. Have, have you gone through this, and how do you end up handling it because it's something that i think a lot of us are going to be dealing with 414-799-1620 if you're on the line please hold on this is jeff wagner back to take your calls here's wtmj's jeff wagner so very glad to have you with us maggie in menominee falls hi maggie hi how are you i'm very well thank you okay have you started dealing with this whole stuff clutter issue yeah, um, my parents have already been trying to kind of foist stuff that we might want. Um, I'm 35 um, already on us. They've been cleaning their house. They've already gone through, you know, getting rid of um, both of their parents' homes. Right. So what my mom did, and I think this is one of the coolest things, is they've already addressed what we want and what we don't want. And my sisters and I have always wanted the scrapbooks. My mom has been a scrapbooker sure. since I before I was born. She has uploaded every picture onto um, flash drives and things like that for us mm-hmm. so that we have them already. And anything else we want physical, she'll either ask us or they get rid of it. Okay. So sometimes it's a little hard. <laughs> you know, your well, mom's like, okay, take this. But I think what she's doing is amazing. She's put hours into this. Well, right. And, and, it, and, it, these- and it makes it easy for you because you, you don't want to hurt your mom's feelings and stuff. But, okay, you you don't need the bedroom set that you had as a child, for example, or, or whatever. No, I don't. Yeah, and, and it's kind of like, yeah, I know there's sentimental attachment, but I've just got no place to go with it, Mom, and I've got nothing to do with it. And I love that painting, but it just doesn't fit into my house or whatever. So you've actually, you're confronting this now. And I love the fact that she's bringing this into the century and to the era that I live in now. Right. I'm not going to have scrapbooks around. Sure. I'm going to have flash drives. Right. And I'm I'm so happy that she's done this. I'm so proud of her. Yeah, no, no, right. It, 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 I mean, it's it's a great gift. Thanks for It's a great gift that you can give your your kids. Like I say, I mean, I I, I have a couple things from my my parents, but there were a the couple things that I wanted, but I, I, I didn't need the living room set. I didn't need... The credenza. I, I had my own desk. It was all that type of stuff. And I don't mean to be unsentimental, but there wasn't a place for it. And Lord knows I had enough stuff of, of my own. But I say this really strikes me because, again, I, I go into houses of friends and stuff, and I see they're, they're great. I, but I see all these knickknacks. I see all these things. I'm thinking, gosh, what's what's going to happen if somebody if something happens? And I kind of went through that a number of years ago. My brother and I, we kind of went through that when all of a sudden my folks couldn't take care of the house. Lynn in Milwaukee. Lynn, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Thanks Hi, Lynn. for taking my 
call. Sure. I actually have really good input, and this is for all listeners who maybe, I don't care how old you are, if you're middle age or if you're getting a little bit older, please, 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 if you have things that are valuable, I'm not talking about furniture. I'm talking about maybe some jewelry or a glass bowl, maybe a pair of earrings, maybe a tie clip. I don't care what it is. My mother had to go in the nursing home for the moment. We never saw it coming. She was 68. I'm the only child. All of a sudden, I had to figure out her entire life, yep. figure out where to put her, what was going on with her. It was a whole, it was horrible. But my bottom line is, I had a house full of items, but because she was so private, I didn't know what was what. I didn't know what the special tablecloth was in the right. closet. I didn't know what jewelry was special. Had I known that, even though I'm not into that kind of stuff, it would have been nice to know some of the stories. Maybe perhaps I would have treasured certain things. Right. Maybe I would have understood the story. So I ask everybody, it's not always about the credenzas or the furniture. It's about maybe if I had known what some of those things or where they belong, where they came from, they would have probably meant more to me versus a bunch of stuff. And it was a whole house. I had to figure right. out. Share that with your kids. Share that with your loved ones. Ask them when you're alive. I can guarantee you it means so much more to be given the object from the person while they're still that person, while they're okay, right. versus once they're sick or once they're passed. It means nothing after that. Well, right, and then you're in a crisis situation because you're, okay, mom's in the nursing home. You know, you've got this house that's full of stuff, and you got to figure out, what what are we going to do? You know, and it's just no. Thanks for calling. No, I appreciate it. And that's I guess that's one of the the values of this too. I mean, I I, I have friends. I know that they believe in moving every ten years because it forces them to to get rid of things to kind of make. When we were cleaning out my house in Whitefish Bay, that was there. There were different piles. It was okay. Um, is, is this is this stuff that gets thrown away? Is this stuff that goes to goodwill? Is this pile things that we're not sure what we're going to do with, we want to think about, and then the other pile is the stuff that you're definitely going to move. And and I, I do, you have to be, you have to be brutal with this type of stuff because otherwise, you know, if, if you, I, I, if you move too much, then, you know, you're, all you're doing is moving your clutter somewhere else. Let's talk to Mike in Michigan. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff, thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Yeah, I agree with pretty much everybody, uh, what everybody else said beforehand. And uh, I just I wanted to say that uh, in 2013, my uncle died unexpectedly. Uh, he was next door neighbors to my parents. So what happened was uh, his daughter, who lives in Maine, had flown over for the funeral. And after we uh, went through all of his stuff and she took what she wanted and whatever she didn't want, uh, the rest of the family could take. But at the end of it all, there was still an overwhelming amount of stuff. And the problem was, you know, everybody else either had similar items to it or just simply didn't want it. Right. So we had a couple of rummage sales or we goodwilled it. And my and then a couple of years ago, my uh, father-in-law had a stroke. So that kind of got the wheel set in motion for yeah. my parents, you know, to you know, kind of clean up their their house and, <laughs> right. you know, whatever they didn't want, they either gave to us or goodwill or, right. you know, they realize they're not getting any younger, so they didn't want to leave a mess for those kids when if something should happen to them. Oh, no, and I and thanks. And again, I, I think that's that's a gift that you're giving your kids. Russ in Wales. Russ, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Russ. My story is 
my story is maybe not quite so much fun. So my parents, they move in 95, and then they pass away in 97 and 2000. So, and they were in their 50s only. Oh. So they didn't help me. They didn't ask me to help move. I thought, oh, I'm sure my frugal parents, they went through everything, and they cleaned everything up before they moved. No, my frugal parents must have written one big check and moved everything. <laughs> Jeez. So my sister and I spent months going through it after that, giving stuff away, and right. uh, eventually the last of it went to an estate sale. And then I remember looking at the money that came from that estate sale and thinking, I wish I'd worked even harder to give it away. Because <laughs> it still means something. It right. still means something to have given things to people that they still use or that they have, that it was useful for someone that I knew. Right. Right. No, no, I pre, no, thank, and again, that, that's kind of the situation that we were at when we, a lot of the things that we moved from my Whitefish Bay house, we still, we, stuff that was good, you know, it's in our basement. We, we have, we have family and friends that come over. We call it going shopping. You know, you can go down there and, oh, you need this? Okay. I think we, we've got stuff. But, but at the same time, we, we tried to be critical with that. Here's one text. Jeff, I have had three estates in my basement over the last 20 years. Yes, my parents, my wife's parents, and my grandparents. It got to the point that I had no room. I realized these items meant the world to them, but most of it was outdated stuff that no one wanted. Finally took the plunge, took it to St. Vinny's or Goodwill. Sadly, they agreed most of it was junk in today's world, and they just threw it out. So now I'm working on getting some of my stuff out so my kids won't have to deal with it. Just a conversation that I think it's worth having. Just saying. This is Jeff Wagner. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. Interesting thing playing out in the Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission. The mayor has nominated this woman named Denise Bartlett, who's a retired uh, Milwaukee Police Department employee. She was a matron and did and a union steward. Um, most of the time she was at MPD, she dealt with prisoners from 72 to 2001. Now, let me be real clear. I, I don't take any position. I take no position on whether she's a good choice for the Fire and Police Commission or or not. As a matter of fact, um, there there's some things about her background that make me question whether or not they could do better. But I, that, that's not the underlying issue. She's become very, very controversial because of a letter she wrote to the Milwaukee Journal in October of 2012. You might remember, if you were around, back in 2011, there was a story of of a guy named Derek Williams, 22 years old. He died in the back of a squad car, and he was... You know, he was in the squad car. He was handcuffed. He was um, saying that he couldn't breathe. He couldn't breathe. He was asking the officers for help, and and they didn't give him attention in a prompt fashion. It was a horrible sort of story. She writes a letter to the Journal Sentinel, says, okay, look, you have to have some perspective on this. And she, at least according to the current story in the Journal Sentinel, blames the, the Williams' death, the guy who died in police custody, on, quote, fakers who pretended to need medical attention and ostensibly deafened police officers' ears to cries for help. She writes, I've seen the video numerous times of Williams in the backseat of the squad car. He acted and sounded like the many hundreds of prisoners I and other officers dealt with who faked their medical emergencies over the many years before Williams. All these fakers should hang their heads in shame because Williams appeared just like them. These are the real culprits, the fakers who are very good 
actors. Okay, so what she's saying is not that Derek Williams was a faker, but she says, look, the, you got, what you got to understand is the problem that these police officers deal with people who are faking these medical conditions on a regular basis. And so it's easy for them to assume, hey, the last 20 people, you know, have faked this condition and not to appreciate that, you know, somebody really is experiencing the medical condition. Now, it doesn't excuse the officers. I mean, it doesn't. You have to treat everything like it's real. But, but, you know, she says, but you got to understand the officer's perspective, too. They're just they, they deal with this on a regular basis by one guy after another faking these things. I guess I don't see that remark as being that controversial in the Williams case. Clearly, the officers didn't didn't correctly assess the situation. And there, there needs to be a degree of accountability. But it is kind of like the boy who cried wolf. If you're a police officer and, you know, every time you're making an arrest or on a regular basis, this is the thing that people are doing in the backseat. Oh, I'm hurt. I'm hurt. I need a medical emergency. And it's always a fake. It's easy to see how an officer might not, you know, appreciate when when the real thing ends up coming along. It doesn't excuse the officers. It doesn't make them not accountable. But I guess I, I look at this remark, and like I say, I, I'm certainly not endorsing this woman for a position in the Fire and Police Commission. There's other things in her background that give me a little bit of pause as to whether she's a good choice. But th- this letter that she wrote has become the controversy, and I guess I just... I don't see that necessarily as being that controversial, where she says, look, you got to understand the police perspective. They deal with a lot of people who are crying wolf on a regular basis. So if you're looking for blame, maybe some of that blame should go to all the people who cry wolf on a regular basis, because it's easy to understand how somebody, a police officer, might not appreciate the real thing when they're confronted with people who are faking day after day after day. Doesn't excuse the officers, and I didn't get the sense that she was excusing the officers. I also don't get the sense that that remark in and of itself should, at least in my opinion, disqualify her. For, disqualify her. Might be other things in her background that disqualify her, but that's another story. All right. Over the last couple weeks, we have unfortunately had two more shootings, school shootings, one at a high school near Denver and one at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. All right, the first one that happened was at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. 21-year-old guy, Riley Howell, died in the shooting. He was trying to defend his fellow students. Um, At the high school shooting on May 7th, an 18-year-old senior, his name was Kendrick Ray Castillo, he was killed when he confronted one of two shooters who were accused of killing him and wounding eight others. And, and the story behind that one, you might remember it, the young man apparently said that, you know, he was, you know, he, he was going to protect his classmates and he ran into this and, and he confronted the attackers and it ended up costing him his life. The question now becomes... Should we be encouraging people to stand up to the attackers? Typically, what they say when there is a school shooting is they call the response, it's called the ALICE response, A-L-I-C-E, A, alert. Alert someone when you first become aware of a threat. L, lockdown. If the evacuation is not a safe option, barricade entry points to the room. I, inform. Employees and safety officers should communicate information on the shooter's location. C, 
counter, distract to reduce the shooter's ability to shoot accurately, including throwing objects at the attacker's face, making loud noises and creating distractions. Students swarm the shooter to take control if necessary, and E is evacuate, get to a safe area, including evacuating through windows if necessary. In the North Carolina situation and the shooting in Denver, both of the people who lost their lives, they were at the sea. They were at the counter. They charged the attacker. They tried to, you know, rather than just, hey, we're going to be victims here, we're going to try to step up. We're going to try to do something. A lot of schools have things along this. Like, for example, they'll have a baseball bat in the room, and the instruction is biggest person supposed to grab the bat, and if it gets to this, you use the baseball bat. Or they'll have canned goods in the room, and the argument is if somebody comes into that room and they've got the gun, you grab the canned goods and you start throwing them at them. Well, now people in the wake of these two deaths are questioning, should we be encouraging people to counter? Should we be encouraging people to resist? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Nobody is arguing that these two people who passed away in the last couple weeks were heroes. There's no question about it. But the question, I guess, becomes, should we be encouraging people to do that? If there's a shooter in the room, now obviously you want to evacuate, countering, attacking, fighting back is not the option of choice, the first choice. But if you've got somebody that's in the room, you know, what do you do? Do you cower under the desk? Do you, you can't get out? Or do you, I don't know, try to resist? Kind of like what happens with the hijackers on the airplane. I mean, is it best to just sit there or do you try to confront them? Should we do away with this idea of counter? 414-799-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this and we will discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Don in Waterford. Don, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Actually, got two points. Number one, I think that uh, a select group of teachers should be trained and authorized to conceal and carry only if they wish to. Number two, you don't see a lot of school resource officers, you know, at every single school. I know it can get expensive, but why can't we have a school resource officer at every single school? Well, I mean, I think that's a, a fair issue. What about the underlying question? I mean, do you think it's wrong to encourage kids to resist if if other options aren't available? You know, realistically, if, if, if it's a last-ditch effort, I think no matter what law enforcement or not, you need to eliminate the threat. Yeah. And the more people that I think uh, you know are willing to try to save the day, so to speak, I'm sure it's not going to hurt. You know, you mentioned the point about canned goods, having mm-hmm. that ready and available. I mean, that's great and everything, but, you know, the baseball bat thing, too, but I think school resource officers can really help out a lot and certain teachers that can steal and carry. And I, you know, back to your point, yeah, I do think we should, kids should try to fight back. Absolutely. Yeah, and I guess, th- and I guess that, I mean, thanks. For, I guess that, that's, look, I, I, I want to understand. I am not encouraging somebody to say, oh, gee, there's, you get the report that there's a school shooting in another part of the building. Let's run and try to attack the attacker. No, that, that's not what I'm saying. But this, this whole way they teach people, it's kind of, 
as a last resort. First, you want to evacuate. You know, then you want to barricade. You I mean, obviously, those are the things. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you've got the shooter that's in the classroom and, you know, is presenting the active threat. And I, I think they say, OK, one of the things is consider resisting as kind of this last ditch type of thing. And I don't find that to be irresponsible. Um, th- these these two people in these last school shootings, they these they were heroes. They were heroes because, yes, they, they cost them their lives, but they they were trying to protect other people. And as a last-ditch effort, I, I don't see that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, if the alternative is, no, you've got the person that's just walking indiscriminately into the classroom and shooting people, well, you can hide under your desk or you could try to you can try to resist as a last-ditch effort. I don't think there's anything wrong with encouraging people to, if you can do so intelligently, to, to fight back. I don't think so. Brian in Appleton. Brian, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Hi, Brian. I, agree with, uh, I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think the kids need to have every option available. I used to teach lifeguards, and when you teach lifeguarding, you don't teach them the first thing they do is jump in the water and go rescue the person. There's an order of methods that you follow, and it's reach, throw, row, and then go with support as a last resort. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing I would do in this situation is you teach them what that order of methods is. Of course you're going to tell them, they can get out of there and leave. Why would they stay there right. and wait for the person to come? Right. So, and it, it, I just, and I also think that it, it doesn't matter what you tell the kids to do. There's always going to be a part of society that says you didn't tell them to do this; it's your fault, or you told them to do this; they're dead; it's your fault. It, it doesn't matter. And when it comes to down to it. It's those kids that are there. It's their lives, and there are no rules and no guidebooks at that point. Right, you know, and I think to your point, I, I think there there's certain there's certain impulses that kind of take over. And I mean, I, I who knows how you would react, how I would react under a certain situation. But you're faced with this this ongoing school shooting, and you sit there and you say, "There's nowhere to run. There's really nowhere to hide." Well, okay, I'm I'm going to see if I can overpower the attacker. I mean, that's. I, you know, I think that's one of these split-second decisions that, that people make, and and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And, you know, may, maybe by doing that, you're able to deflect things and you're able to save a couple people's lives. Agreed. Yeah. No, thanks for call. I appreciate it. So that's, I, I think, th- like I said, this Alice method is being taught it's one of the things that you know they they teach in different schools and all and because of the events of the last month some people are saying okay well maybe we we need to take out that confront type of thing you know don't don't ever confront well i don't see any sense and that makes no sense to me it's kind of like all right if a last ditch type of effort maybe sometimes that you you have to fight back and is that the first alt response well no that's not the first response but there's nothing wrong necessarily with doing that if the circumstances are so limited that that's what you think you need to do to either save yourself or protect other people in the classroom. And like I say, it doesn't diminish the fact that these these two students, their actions over the last couple weeks, complete and total heroes, no question about it. When we come back, we're going to find out what John and Greg and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.